Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Williams and you're listening to Know Your Own Psychology. After many years building a successful career as a psychologist, I finally realised that it didn't reflect the autonomy and freedom I wanted in both my life and work. As I made plans to begin working for myself, my husband died suddenly and my whole world fell apart. But with a young family to look after and big dreams I did not want to give up on, I took some time and in the middle of the global pandemic, I left my old life behind. Today, I'm a private psychologist, digital course creator, mum to five and best-selling author. My mission is to simplify psychological ideas so that you can know your own psychology, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose. Are you ready to be empowered? This is Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. It's episode seven of the podcast and in today's episode, I am leaning hard into vulnerability. Now, I would imagine that most of you listening to my podcast already know that in 2018, I experienced a traumatic loss of my husband, Matty, when he was just 37 years old. And obviously that's not a circumstance that anyone imagines that they will ever find themselves in. And it was a massive catalyst in my life. After his loss, I wrote about it initially tentatively for myself, um, both from a personal perspective and then later as a psychological perspective in the form of blog posts and social media posts. And I know that many people following me today have been around since those really early days. And by the way, those blog posts were so therapeutic to me and my healing And I want to thank each and every one of you who read them and reached out to tell me if they resonated with you. And your encouragement at that time meant that those posts eventually became my self-published book, Grief Writer, A Journal, which is essentially a self-help resource to help anyone grieving to process their emotions through writing. I feel very, very strongly in the power of the written word to help people when they are struggling with certain things. And that book is available to buy on Amazon. And it hit the bestseller list on its release date. I'll link to it in the show notes of today's episode, but I bring up the book and the writing because that book represents, to me anyway, some of Matty's legacy. And that is so, so meaningful to me. So thank you. Now, before I get into the main section of the podcast, I wanted also to say this. Telling your story to help yourself and others can be so beneficial. I really believe that sharing with people you trust to aid your healing is so important. And it's something that I talk with and work towards with my clients almost every time I am doing some one-to-one therapeutic work. But I also know that in the early stages of trying to cope with my loss 
people would ask me what felt like endless questions about what had happened and it often felt that there was an expectation that I would share everything. Now I pride myself on being a very open, transparent and truthful person and it was really difficult for me to hold back when people would put me on the spot and ask me things about my grief and my loss. I struggled with being asked questions in front of my kids, in school playgrounds and getting emotional in front of people who weren't strangers but were also not people I would necessarily share that level of vulnerability with was really hard and I grew to learn that my boundaries had to be really strong with that stuff. And I also struggled with knowing that what people don't know, they just construct their own narrative around. And I really didn't like that. But over time, I've realised that this story was our story, mine and my family's. It wasn't anyone else's and I could choose to share only the details that mattered to the extent that it would help other people. And so to those of you out there who have been through a trauma, any kind of trauma, it doesn't necessarily have to be a loss, just remember that your story is yours. And so look after it. You can share what you choose to and develop your boundaries on what that looks like. Okay, now that said, today I will talk you through my experience and also I'll have a section where I discuss with my partner his own traumatic loss and a little bit about what it's been like for us navigating grief, new love after loss and blending families under these circumstances. Okay, I'll be back in just a minute. Right, so I want you to picture this scene. I am 35 years old and married. I've got three kids who are all five or under. The twins were just two at the time. And I think that at that point I'd been married for nearly 10 years. It was going to be our 10th wedding anniversary in the October of that year. I had a job that I loved and I was working in a senior position in the NHS, working in Scottish jails. We had amazing family and friends around us. And, you know, we were like any other family with young kids. We were tired, but we were happy and healthy. And life was good. What's interesting to me when I reflect on it was that whether through my job and the hard things in my clients' lives that I was exposed to on a daily basis, or maybe just because of the type of person I am, 
even though life was good, I always had this nagging sense that something bad was coming down the line for me. And I didn't really speak about it to anyone, but I saw how in the end, usually at some point, we all face hardship of some form or another. Um, Brené Brown talks about this as foreboding joy. To be, you know, so happy in one moment, but then in the next, instantly worried for when that might end or that version of our lives might be shattered by something difficult. And then that happened to us. Now we, to give you a bit of context to the story, we had also been applying for our visas to emigrate to Australia and we'd been doing that in the sort of six month lead up to his death and it had been a massive dream for us for a very long time. When we had got married we went to Australia for our honeymoon, Matty was a welder and you know he could have got a job very easily over there. And we just loved the idea of living life in the outdoors with a bit more sunshine and what it would offer to our children. And it's almost unbelievable to me when I look back on it now, but those visas and this dream that we had for how our life was going to turn out came through for us at the end of May 2018. And Matty died at the end of June just a month later. His loss was very sudden. It was incredibly traumatic. He became unwell in our home. His heart stopped doing what it needed to do. And I woke up to this situation around one in the morning. And as you can imagine, you never ever imagine that you are going to be faced with something like that. The children were in bed, I had to call an ambulance, I had to get my family round. And he deteriorated in the house, but was still alive and was then taken to hospital where he died in the early hours of the morning. Both our families live close by and within minutes were in our house and watched the whole thing play out alongside me. And I don't underestimate the impact of the trauma and the grief they went through too. And I think I've written about this before, but I remember leaving the house to go to the hospital And I can't remember the exact words that my mum said to me as I left. But I turned to her at that point and I remember very vividly saying to her, he's going to die. And I'm sure she tried to say something to reassure me. But I just, I knew. And I could tell from having witnessed what I just witnessed, from... I guess, being fairly intuitive in reading people and reading the expressions on 
the health professionals' faces as they were attending to him and also just how physically compromised he was as he left our house. And so when we got to the hospital, it was really just a case of what I felt like for me waiting. And I'm sure there was a little bit of hope in there somewhere. But that was not to, that was not to come true. And as you can imagine, in the weeks that followed, we were devastated. There were times I questioned how on earth I would be able to go on alone, looking after our children, how I would actually be able to do that, putting one step in front of the other, keeping a smile on my face for them, helping them through their grief. There was just so much to think about. But at the same time as that devastation and the growing reality of I was now a widow, I was 35, I had also never felt so much love, support and gratitude than I did in the few weeks after. And I was really so lucky, we were so lucky to have a life where people were present for me. And I remember those phone calls once we got back to the house after being at the hospital and, you know, phoning my brother, phoning my friends, phoning his friends. And people just essentially being so shocked and within minutes being at the house and everyone just being in complete shock. Um, but I was lucky to have everyone and I think that really helped us to um, I guess feel supported and know that though it might not feel like that right now that it was going to be okay so that's a bit of the lead up to it um, and a little bit of what happened that night but, you know, I, I guess one of the key things that was really apparent for me in the days and the weeks after was the trauma that I had just been through. And, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist. I worked with trauma day in, day out. And I knew it. I did know it. Um, but I hadn't really, truly experienced what psychologists would talk about as a type 1 trauma. Um, and now that I had, it was a very surreal experience knowing it academically and professionally and then being thrust into actually living it. So yeah, I'm just, I was going to talk a little bit to some of the things that were really, you know, um, apparent to me at that time. And I've tried not to be too scripted about this, um, because I think that would be easy just to, you know, script things and talk it through and not really give a full version of things. But, I'll, you know, I'm going to do my best just talking through some points. But one of the things that was really difficult, I think, was that because Matty was 37 and had been in good health and there'd been no indication that there was anything like this going to happen his loss was deemed sudden 
and I guess what I would call and would write about this later is out of the natural order of things. And even though he didn't die in our house, because it had been a sudden loss, there's certain things that have to happen um, when something like that goes on. And that involved the police. And so when I got back to our house, I think it was something like five in the morning when I got home from the hospital, immediately like we knew that police were coming round to take a statement from me. And there was a police presence about the house. They wanted to know what had happened. And I'll never forget actually two of my very best friends in the world came and (laughs) sat with me as I did that and it was so important for me that they were there because I think when you go through something like that and then you have a very odd situation where you're being asked to talk it through almost immediately and I don't know about anyone else but I I really um this is funny on two levels because my my new partner is a police officer but I was always the person who if I was driving along and a police car ended up behind me I would feel instantly guilty (laughs) despite having never you know broken any laws in my life and there was a real sense of that in that moment of talking through what had happened and you know I felt really under a level of scrutiny on top of the trauma that I just witnessed in losing him and yeah I think it's not often spoken about how um, when you've experienced a sudden loss like that that often things like that are happening there's lots of strangers around there's a police presence um and that's not to say, you know, the police um, involvement uh, was very short-lived and they were very good um, in how they dealt with us as a family. But I have heard stories of sudden loss where that was not the case and people um, having an added layer of trauma on top of what they'd already gone through. <sighs> Just taking a second. It's interesting how, um, you know, even four years later, the emotions are still very, very present if I allow them. And I mean, to take that on a little bit further, so people were coming to the house that day, supporting me, taking the children out, giving me some time. And I remember as it got towards evening time, my mum and other people sort of saying, right, you know, we will stay with you. We'll need to stay with you tonight. And I remember almost immediately just rejecting this idea that anyone would be in the house with me that night which on reflection when I look back now I think god like what what was I thinking but at the time I really felt that I needed to be okay with looking after my kids in particular that was going to be like my main focus and if I couldn't do that on my own even from that early moment I was going to be in big trouble and I think that's what that was it was a sense of no I will be in this house on my own tonight and I will cope and I will be fine and you know it just felt like something that I had to do 
to almost reassure myself that I was going to be able to do it, that I would be able to continue and look after them all and do that well. And oh God, like when I when I think back, so Matty died obviously in June. It was a particularly good summer, I remember. And um about three days after his death, it was a super hot day. And I have this memory of, you know, getting the kids ready, blowing up a paddling pool in the back garden, filling it, getting my own swimming costume on and getting into this paddling pool with the three kids and knowing, my God, like if my neighbours hear me, they are going to think I have absolutely lost it. And there began, I think, the ideas that we have about how we should and shouldn't grieve. And I think that's massive for people, whether it's been a traumatic loss or not. We have these societal expectations and inbuilt stories about what we believe is the way to grieve the right way. Um, and yeah, I I think I very quickly reeled against much of that. And I'll, I'll come on and talk about more about that as I go on um but yeah so to to come back to trauma just a second I knew that after experiencing what I had I just understood trauma differently now because I was actually in real time experiencing it um maybe a week or so after it all happened, maybe a bit more memory gets hazy over time when it's not the sort of light bulb moments of it, you know, the flash bulb moment of the trauma itself. But I had to drive to the police station to pick up some of my husband's clothing and different things. And I remember driving and, you know, driving is one of these automatic uh, things that you do. And, you know, you get to some place and you don't really know how you got there. Um, but while I was driving there... I experienced a flashback of what had happened in our bedroom that night, the scene, the noises, the visuals of it all. And none of that ever really distressed me, I think because I knew what it was. And in that moment of having that experience of what a traumatic um, reaction felt like I also think I was able to develop even more compassion for people who have been through a trauma and don't know what that is when they experience a flashback or something similar and I definitely think it helped me generally in my grief to be able to know what it was that I was experiencing and rationalize that a bit while at the same time it also meant that I was able to put a bit of distance between me and my grief in a way that I think became unhelpful later on down the line and you know for those of you out there who've lost a loved one um, you will know that grief is a funny kind of um, process insofar as what I believe is it gives you only enough of what you can deal with at the time and then over time it reveals more and more of itself to us and so in those early days, it was very much sort of fight or flight survival mode. 
and just getting through each day, looking after children, and then the full scale of the loss sort of hits you over and over again as time goes on. And so moving on a little bit, some of the other things I noticed about my trauma reaction yeah was interesting so because things had all happened in my bedroom immediately I was like there's no way I'm gonna sleep in there (laughs) and all these things are irrational right me sleeping in that bedroom wasn't gonna mean anything bad for me but it might and my brain was telling me but it might and so I avoided my bedroom like the plague um actually something just came to mind after when I first came home from the hospital there was medical equipment and loads of things that are strewn across the room and I remember knowing that I was going to have to tell my daughter who was five what had happened and I wanted to do that pretty much as soon as she woke up um, she'd stayed with family at home and the first thing I did when I got in after speaking to family was to go upstairs tidy my bedroom and make it right for her to come in with me and for me to tell her what had happened to her dad and um, that was possibly the hardest thing I've ever had to do ever um and yeah I think people people would say to me after um this like oh my goodness you're so strong and I remember just sort of looking and thinking yeah but it doesn't feel like that because you're just doing what you know is the right thing um strength and resilience for me was something that just came with the territory of being a parent and knowing that I had to minimise the damage caused by this for my children as best I could and maximise the opportunity for um, healing and transparency and open conversation between them and I. And of course it was different for my twins who were just two because they would have been too young to really understand any of it at this stage. But yeah, to get back to what I was saying, so after that, um, I did then avoid my bedroom like the plague and I immediately threw out my mattress. I think that was within within like a week. Um, I slept elsewhere in my daughter's room for weeks and then eventually it came to me that, yep, I'm going to switch rooms about. So my twin boys ended up in that room and it just made the room different and I moved to um, their room and set up set up there and I wonder if you know those of you out there listening who've been through you know trauma like that you know we may have done similar things like it's driven by irrational thoughts but we get into the realms of sort of magical thinking of like, like I better not sleep in that bedroom in case something bad happens to me too and yeah so I after that I those early weeks I took time off work and this is something that people speak to me about a lot actually um, and people spend a lot of time sort of debating how much time they need off work um, 
feeling guilty about being off work. Um, but I took six months. Um, and yeah, there, like there were times where I felt like, oh yeah, you know, I should be back in my job, you know, not taking a wage for being at home. Um, but then I was able to sort of tell myself, well, no, because this is what this is there for. You know, you need time off to make sure that when you go back, particularly given my job, that I'm able to hold space for others. And oh, there were times where I wondered, like, how will I go back to therapy? How will I be able to listen to people's hard stuff? How will I be able to listen to stuff if I'm being really honest that maybe I think at some point oh well that's not as bad as what I've been through and that was a horrible place to be because you know the cornerstone of my job is being able to be compassionate for people and I think what that experience did in the early days was rob me of some of my own compassion for others experiences because I was so wrapped up in my own understandably for a period of time And even when I did go back to work, I made a very deliberate decision that I wasn't going to go back to the job that I was in um, for a couple of reasons. One, because it was almost a full-time job um, and it was about an hour and ten minutes away from home. And because I had a real sense of the scrutiny of the experience, which I didn't enjoy had kind of passed by that point but if I went back to my old job I would have to go through all that again with people sort of asking me questions and me having to explain what had happened and I just didn't really want that so I about four and a half months in found a job that was going to suit me better applied got it and started in the January of the following year so I think what's that about six seven months um, and yeah, I, I have clients who will talk about how hard that is going back to work too early um, or by contrast feeling like they're unable to go back to work and grief, you know, affects us all so differently. And yeah, there's some other interesting aspects of, um, you know, there's like certain industry standards, which I'll talk about in the section with my partner Murray too, but um, you very quickly when you're sort of um, in the the grief club, if you like, um, you very quickly realise that there's certain things that people will tell you about grief. You know, don't make any big changes like moving house or emigrating or getting into a new relationship is the big one. And actually on the emigration thing, you know, that had been Matty and I's dream for such a very long time that there was a point at which I considered... Uh, Maybe I'll just go. That'll be okay. I'll I'll just pack on up and I'll take my three kids halfway across the world and leave their family and yeah, I'll just get on with it. And of course that wasn't the right thing and um it wasn't the right thing for my children, absolutely. And or for myself because I needed family support now in a way that I never did before. Um but I guess what that reflected was uh sense of wanting to escape I think and so yeah I wonder how many of you have been told those things you know the platitudes around grief and what you should and shouldn't do (laughs) 
So yeah, look, that's that's some of my personal experience and I'm sure there's so much more I could say about it, but I'd be here for far too long, I'm sure. But the other couple of points I wanted to make were really from a professional point of view. And one of the things that I'm always keen to discuss with people when I'm talking about grief is the difference between grief and trauma. And I think very often when you've been through a traumatic loss, um, people sort of mesh the two together. And I think it's really, really unhelpful because my trauma was what I was dealing with in the first couple of months. My grief came later. And it's important to be able to understand and separate out those two things. Um, it's why as well I felt that I needed some support in the early days which I wasn't really able to access for some of the reasons that I find frustrating as a professional so I'll talk to this very briefly but you know um, because grief is not a clinical thing you know it's a normal process that everyone um, goes through when they lose someone that they love um, you can't really get support for grief until you're at least six months past the point at which your loved one has died. And at that stage, if grief, I mean, the language around this is just awful in my view, but um, clinically the way this is spoken about is if your grief has not, um, I'm doing quotation marks with my fingers here, resolved within six months, then it becomes a clinical issue and it's, you know, talked about as like unresolved grief um, or complex grief. And oh, just, I mean, grief is something that lives with you forever. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that to reduce anyone's hope. I say that because it's the truth. And because your grief, when you've been through a loss like I have, um, will remain with you forever and you just find a way to live around it and that's very much what I feel I've done um so yeah that's that's my sort of soapbox around grief um counseling and therapy and so I had this real sense I would have loved to have some um help and support at the start around the trauma of my experience which I didn't really get until a little bit later down the line um, and you know as a psychologist what that really was is how we turn that as sort of post-incident trauma support um, or post-incident debriefing um, but that's not always available to people and I think it's a real shame that when people have traumatic experiences like that that they are sort of left floundering and then if you do get access to grief work, um, you know, what what is that like for you? Are you able to talk about that openly? You know, it's, it's different for everyone. And the other part of um, grief uh, from a professional point of view that I, of course, had learned and knew about was the five stages of grief. So for those of you who haven't heard of it, this is a model that was um, coined by a lady called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she, again, this was not a model that was developed in response to um, 
grief itself but actually um, the stages that people who themselves are dying of a terminal illness goes through and then it was later used to think about um, those left behind grieving but the stages if you don't know them um, are denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance and over the years this has come up against a lot of um, criticism as a model because people misunderstood it. There was this idea around that it was linear and that you worked through your stages and then you were spat out the other end and on went your life. And I don't think, having done lots of reading around this and um, including uh on the later stage of grief, which was developed by um, David Kessler, a man who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and that stage was called Finding Meaning. And that resonated so deeply with me because I knew that my life was going to be so different from what I had envisaged. This idea of my three kids and my husband and I living out our days in Australia, Um, coming home to see family had disappeared, vanished. More than that had been taken from me and I knew that to survive this I didn't just need to go through five stages of grief, I would need to find meaning and purpose again after it and so when I am working with people on grief that's what I'm really doing with them. I'm sitting with them in their emotions, helping them to access those helping them to process those and also to come out the other end with renewed meaning and purpose because without that I don't think you're fully um, healed if you like and so the stages are not linear you know we will move in and out of them I still have days where I feel very very sad um, and I guess that might sit within the stage of depression those days become less as time goes on Um, but they can still really knock me for six and feel very acute Um, the most recent example of that was what would have been our um, wedding anniversary uh, just a few weeks ago and when I have those days What I find is most prevalent for me now, four years down the line, is that my grief is much more to do with two things. One is what my children are experiencing on a daily basis. Um, Going to school without a dad at home to come home to and tell about their lives and about what they're doing and all the good stuff that they're up to. And also what he has missed. And, you know, I guess the one saving grace is that I don't think my husband knew much about what happened. He went to bed and he didn't wake up. And so he never has to live with the knowledge of the loss of what he has missed. Um, that's that's for me to hold and so yeah so you know there are days where I still get very sad 
there are days where I still get very angry. Um, the anger is usually <laughs> reserved for, you know, when life sort of hits you in the face and you realise, like, on Father's Day, for instance, that your kids will never be able to write a Father's Day card for their um, biological dads and those types of things. So, like, that is a little bit about you know, my professional, my professional work and my professional view on grief. I, before recording the podcast, I asked my people on social media um, to send me any questions or anything that they would like me to speak about. And one of the questions that I thought was really um, poignant was, was it helpful to frame my grief from the perspective of my husband, the person who I had lost? And the short answer for me is yes, because everything I know about my husband tells me that he would have wanted me to be happy and he would have wanted me to move forward and for my children to move forward. Um, And yeah, do you know what? It sounds cliche, doesn't it? And the reality is that we can never answer these questions fully. But there it is. Um, And these types of questions incidentally sit within that sort of um, stage of grief known as bargaining. You know, we sort of bargain with ourselves like what would he have wanted? What would he have thought? What would he have done? You know, all those kind of questions that we ask ourselves that we can never really answer because the person's not here to answer them. And so we're forced to, um, I guess, look inward and ask ourselves the question based on what we know about the person that we love and for me that has absolutely helped me to move forward and continue living life and it may not be that way for everyone Um, and I also deliberately say move forward that's another thing that really winds me up Um, (laughs) whenever people would say things like with all the best of intentions of course say things like moving on Um, I really dislike this notion that you move on from a marriage and a life that you thought you were going to have. Instead, I very much view it as I am moving forward in my life from a time where that was my reality and now my reality is different. (sighs) Okay, Um, I am going to take a break and I'll be right back to talk more about grief um, in this section with my partner Murray who himself experienced a sudden loss. So yeah, I'll be back in a sec. Welcome back and I'm here with my partner Murray to talk about our shared experience of life after loss. (laughs) How are you feeling being here Murray? It's a little bit strange, but all <laughs> going to be good. Okay, so I felt it was a useful thing to talk about because we have both had the shared experience of losing a spouse and we've then met each other and I think we probably have a fairly unique perspective on grief and loss. So I'm going to pass to you and I'm going to ask you to tell the listeners a little bit about how we first met. Yeah. Okay. 
Am I allowed to be completely truthful? So the first time we met, uh, I think Yuri reached out to me uh, on the through Way, uh, widowed and young for people under fifty, and you just, I think you were just looking to try and get a feel of what the group was about, what the sort of people were like, and I don't know, maybe I'm imagining that you're probably looking that we're not all strangers and sort of weirdos, <laughs> and who are this collection of people, and one of the things I felt after the loss of Susan was how looked after I was by the people at Way and maybe other people I met who had been bereaved in the same way that I had losing a spouse and I, I don't know if you feel this but that's something I almost feel a duty to pass on that if you can find someone who is maybe in a worse spot than you and that's not necessarily someone who's more recently bereaved though that will often be the case it's almost like you're trying to pass on the the positivity and message and maybe things that you've used to your advantage to get through which is an incredibly difficult set of circumstances so you reached out to me uh, I think it was I got a message on the way uh, app or whatever it was and yeah. I replied back and yeah. was kind of fairly low-key about it and uh, sort of said about a good being a good bunch of people but at the same time not every, not everyone will be mm. that the people that death is indiscriminate uh, there's no there, there's nothing that, that stops bad stuff from happening to good people yeah. so the people that you meet in way are just, and the people who are bereaved with, with a sudden loss are the sort of variety of sort of human beings that you're going to meet everywhere yeah. so there will be people you get on people you don't get on and I'll be yeah the, yeah. the wondering wondering weirdful and everything else in between yeah. and I think I was just trying to sort of half reassure you that the, the certainly people that went to the Edinburgh meet were, were fairly okay I'm going to go to the next meeting and I, I sort of my sort of thought process behind going to the meetings how I always did it and I said to you this is where I'll be going I think I said I'll be going at this time uh, if you want to come along at the same time if not that's fair enough yeah yeah, and that's because so I went to the went to the Gale and got the yeah. tram in. Yeah, so I just to give a bit of context, I had um, done the thing that every good psychologist does, right, and find the support group. Yep. And had reached out to people who were fairly local to me just to get a sense of what the meetings were like. Um, Widowed and young is for people who have been bereaved under the age of fifty. And yeah, so we initially met there and became friends and met with our children and I think there was a real sense that we wanted to give our kids an opportunity to see that they weren't alone in this either and that other kids had experienced a loss um, and that we could be positive through that experience as well. And obviously, you know, we um, spent more and more time together and eventually fell in love and now here we are four years later. Yeah. Um, and I think people do really love that kind of story, but you know, there's there's lots of hard stuff that's happened in between and we are still grieving together. Yeah. Um and our kids are grieving and so I think it's important to kind but of think about those I things. would without wanting to interject, I think one of the most important things is that we're not in love because we've lost a spouse. Yeah. We're not in love because we've been through a similar set of circumstances. Yeah. 
we're not in love because it helps with our children or they can now have children who step siblings who've undergone the same some of those things are advantageous they're not always advantageous but we met and we fell in love because of the match that we are yeah and under different circumstances and your synchronicity thing's fantastic but <laughs> under a different set of circumstances in different worlds and we'd met another time I think we probably still would have met and fallen in love yeah but it just so happened that you stayed I was yeah. one of the five closest people yeah yeah and we both met that an opportune time for us both to yeah. To come together and it's so funny because one of the things that I've written down to speak to you about was that we both found it really frustrating I think in those early days that I think people believed that we were together because we were widows and actually you know there's easier things to do than meet a widow who has two kids and meet an another widow who has three kids and blend a family together with loss at the core of that um, and so you're right like we're together for lots of different reasons Um. Okay, let me come on to grief and I talked a little bit earlier in this podcast about, you know, that there's certain industry standards and societal norms and expectations around grief and I just wondered, like, you know, um, what your sense of that was and whether you felt like people judged us and when we got together, all of those kind of things. Uh, industry standard, first six months you got to look upset and sad all the time. At literally the, the six months on the dot people will start saying to you oh that you maybe will meet someone and it's going to be at some point and look to the future and then in literally one year it's like oh have you got a girlfriend have you got a boyfriend yet that that's what i found in my experience always in a nice way from people nobody ever been overbearing but that was kind of how it felt that's not how i did things uh, I, I came because i before before we got together i'd sort of jumped into the, the dating pool so to speak and how that came about for me was that nothing could take away the 10 years that I had with Susan and that 10 years was always going to be mine and at a point after that I knew that I made a decision that I, of, that I wanted to get married and have children and live with someone so at that time I was 40, uh, going to be turning 41 and I thought nothing can take what I've done up to now away from me and the likelihood is I'll probably want to live my life again with someone and I didn't feel guilty for that mm. and I didn't feel it was in any way disrespectful because that was my 10 mm. years and one of my things about after the death was about being positive and about being a better role model for my children and about moving forward. And it wouldn't be for everyone to to meet someone else. Not everyone will feel they're able to do that. But that was one of the things that I knew for myself would make me better. Mm. It would and I never done I never wanted a replacement for Susan. And one I think one of the reasons one of the very first I think one of the inklings I had when we first met is like how we were going to match is I was sort of probably almost having the same conversation with you because I'd spoken about you know the people and it's like I don't want a replacement mum I just want somebody who can be a a strong role model mm. and that when you understood that straight away and then like and you understood that interestingly but what, exactly what I meant by that mm. and I think it was maybe so Susan died on the 
right at the start of June 2017 and I think at the end of January 18 that's when I sort of put the yeah. the feelers out if you like to, to maybe meeting someone else and yeah. my whole attitude to that was I think at the time I didn't feel I was going to gain anything by waiting I thought I feel how I'd feel just now I can't imagine that three four five months from now I'm going to all of a sudden oh that's a magic 12 months has gone past it's yeah. so it's, it's socially acceptable now yeah I'm like you know what I can go out and I, I, that's how a barrier passed and my, my first date was a lunch meeting as, as I would advise everyone to do for their first date <laughs> go for a coffee somewhere <laughs> with lots of doors <laughs> you make an, an early exit if you need to but pay the bill uh, and I, I thought the worst case the worst thing that can happen from a coffee and a chat is like nah that's not for me yeah. this is too soon but at least then I'll clear that hurdle yeah. and there won't be anxiety about it in the same way and that's yeah. what I did yeah and I'd, yeah we don't need to go on that <laughs> but I think it's interesting because from a gender point of view I mean I um nobody really ever spoke to me about oh when are you going to move forward and meet someone I guess partly because maybe I met you fairly you know soon and although we weren't in a relationship right away I think people had an idea that um you know we we had met and we liked each other and we were spending time and getting to know each other but it's interesting because the time scales around it all are so arbitrary and I just think they're meaningless and so it's something that I'm quite keen to say like you know well they're meaningless but there is a period of vulnerability immediately sure. after the death and there's no getting away from that and that that yeah like everyone's set of individual circumstances and as much as I think we understand grief on such an intimate level that necessarily like necessarily speaking to somebody for instance who's lost somebody to cancer a spouse to cancer or they maybe had a two or three year journey to that death and myself who a sudden cardiac event and Susan is just gone like yeah. like through the tips of my fingers just disappeared yeah that suddenness so I'll have a similarity of the understanding of the person who's had the the cancer it's the, the death through the cancer spouse but there may be somebody who's been in an RTC who's lost somebody in a, like a sudden death in an RTC that's a road or, traffic crash, yeah, by the way. traffic <laughs> collision, not crash. <laughs> uh, that, again, I understand the suddenness, the, 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 and maybe in a way, probably in a better way than, than most will, but every set of circumstances and everyone's different. Mm-hmm. And all, all the people I've sort of met, both through way and maybe sometimes even in my working life, I've tried to respect that and not put my... I think that's a difficult thing, is don't put your... Just because I've felt something and I've got strong views about something doesn't mean that's right for everyone. Yeah, I yeah. think I think I, that was something about the kids as well as mm. how I was going to raise the kids afterwards was important to me and the lessons I was going to teach them, and that that was something that like you were very similar in your alignment with that, and that was another reason we we got yeah. on really well at the beginning because yeah. we had the same viewpoint about how we wanted to take our kids forward. Yeah, no, absolutely, and. So I reached out to people and asked um, if anyone had any questions for us and somebody had asked how do you firstly find space to love again and how do you communicate about your grief um, together and I love that because it kind of 
plays into one of the myths I think about grief that somehow or other you're not going to have space to love again or that somehow the love for a spouse who's now gone um, is also gone and I just um, yeah I just don't buy into that at all and I think one of the things that makes our partnership so successful is that we've been able to from the very beginning communicate openly about our spouses about how we feel about our loss and we've not really hidden yeah. much from each other yeah and, I'd, and certainly I didn't with <clears throat> other ladies I met prior to you as well it wasn't that you don't stop loving your wife you don't stop loving your husband once they're, once they're dead and I think it's a very simple way to answer that first question especially of a parent and that, so I had my first boy and he's became the most important thing in my world as the best boy in the world and BBITW best baby in the world and we had him and then all of a sudden Susan got pregnant again and I was worried up to right up to the birth of the second child the second boy uh, how am I going to love him as much and then along he comes and within a few hours you love them both the same because without sounding too wet there's always room for more love in your heart and that's something that should be celebrated that you can love again and that you can there's always room for love because love is just full of good things yeah and generally in the long run it makes everything easier so that that's how you find it that's the easiest way I can explain it yeah I love that I love that and we talked a lot about things that helped us cope and um, I've talked a lot about earlier on about boundaries and how I had to be quite boundaries about what I talked to people about and all those kind of things. And one of the things that you were keen to tell me as some advice at the beginning was to be selfish always and put your own needs first in yes. your grief. And I just wondered if you could say a bit more about that. <laughs> well, now that you've known me for four years, you probably that's, yeah, be selfish. I'm still sticking to that sometimes. Uh, I think very early on, I knew what my responsibility was and I was very selfish and that's the advice I would give along with being kind be kind to yourself it's okay to have moments of doubt it's okay to be upset I mean, my, as a man it's, there's a perception of you can't show emotion my tears were like a badge of honour so that's how much I love Susan I'm not, how could I ever be mm. embarrassed to be crying about my wife but at the same time, I'm, I'm not going to cry and tap. I remember neighbours coming in the first few days afterwards and I was almost I, I was just at the door answering questions and was all planning out funerals and stuff. And they were mm. just looking at me almost in disbelief because they were expecting me to be upset and crying and tapping. It's like, well, I am, like every so often. So like something will sink into me or I'll think, well, I need mm. to ask Susan about that. And I'll just I'll start crying. And yeah. I had my own coping strategies uh, for, for that, but I... At the, the start, my responsibility was the boys who were, they were six and four at the time and they were everything and I was very focused on how <clears throat> the journey that they were going to go on and how I was going to take them on it yeah. and the what I didn't want them to pick up on, what I did want them to pick up on, that I'm, as you know me quite well now, I'm quite good with brutal honesty. And I always answered all their questions in a very factual way. And again, I, I don't judge other people, but that's just what how I knew it would work for me. So that the early days, the one of the first things I said to them was that mummy's always alive in our heart. 
if we love her, she's uh, alive in our brain when we're thinking about her. And uh, that that was, I remember I said that so many times in the first yeah. like few months yeah. uh, when they were asking about mummy, but it was never, mummy's going to be coming back or we'll meet her again in heaven or anything like that. It was, it was difficult because I'm an atheist, but Susan wasn't, she was a Christian. So I had to be quite sensitive about the religious aspects because mm. I've never tried to push them away from religion, but at the same time, it's never something I've, yeah. pushed on and I, again I'm not here to judge other people for how they do that but my selfishness was all about how we were going to go forward how I was going to answer the boys questions and not have time I like to spare on this no. okay <laughs> uh, but basically other people's BS I'm not uh -huh. taking it on board Another yeah. at the time the way I looked at it, like Susan's immediate family, they all had their own spouses. They had their their people. I think the, the other person I felt well, obliged to almost look out for mm. was uh, Susan's godmother, who's become really close to me and got a lot of love for. Yeah. And I thought I need to look out for her a little bit because she didn't have anyone. But it was this is a nucleus is the nuclear family. It's myself and the two boys, mm. and everything going forwards about us and everyone. I don't have to take on anyone else's mm. grief if you like yeah. not carrying anyone else I just have to carry myself and the boys yeah and sometimes they carried me yeah and I think I, I remember you talking to me about that selfishness and what I really took from that was that I needed to try and meet my own needs and not constantly be you know trying to make other people feel better or yeah. to not say if I didn't want to talk about things and I got very good with my boundaries in those early few months just saying you know if things were not right for me um, and that was hard because I don't think that's who I am as a person certainly so <laughs> but as it is for me and that I, I always tell me like it's like getting ambushed is how, how I used to put it so I would prepare and I think a lot of people who are bereaved will maybe do this though they'll prepare themselves for, say, for instance, an anniversary. And you'll think about how it's going to be, so maybe, or like say, a, a birthday, for instance, and Susan's birthday would be coming up. And I would almost psych myself up and I'd make sure I had the day off at work and would go out with the kids for dinner and would celebrate and, and would maybe go and visit the beach where the ashes are and things like that. And it would be tough, mm. but I would get through it because I knew it was coming and I had that anticipation of the difficulty and... It, it never became easy and it never does but there's a, sh a strength you have because you know it's coming but it's when you get ambushed by things I think a, a recent one was telling you about how quite early on somebody asked me about uh, what I was going to do with Susan's ashes and it really caught me sideways and just mm. I'm thinking you just ambushed me with that yeah but the yeah being being selfish and not listening to outside voices especially in the very early days mm. Uh, maybe it's because of my my nature, but certainly at the beginning about for like sort of funerals and people asking you questions or or asking almost trivial things of you, they're not. It's about looking after yourself and looking after your your children. Yeah. Everyone yeah, else can wait, and everyone else is somebody else to, uh, to look after them yeah. for the most part. Yeah. And you're the main character in your story. Yeah. <laughs> main character syndrome but you're the one who's living it it's your spouse who's died so yeah. I'm not here to like I say I'm not here to look after other people it's just yeah no absolutely um one of the things you mentioned when you were speaking about that at the beginning was talking to children about death and loss and 
um, that's something that I get asked about quite a lot actually and um, I thought it was important to kind of cover that because we are parenting five children who've lost a parent and it's helpful that we both come at it from the same standpoint around being quite literal with our kids, being quite open and also in an age appropriate way so I talked very briefly about the fact that the twins were just two and so their understanding of things at that point was different to my daughter who was five and so I think it's something that you'll find your way with but truth is very important I think in terms of managing that psychologically for your kids um, and I just wondered you know what you thought about that yeah well I, I'm in agreement and I can think of a, an instance maybe <clears throat> we had, had uh, I did quite a lot of way events early doors and there was a way event down to the Peebles and as we drove down to Peebles my youngest son at the time tripped up in the back seat and said, well, because you said mummy, mummy's always a, a, in her heart because we love her, you could just cut my heart open and, and mummy would come out and we could get her back alive again. Mm. And and then, and what is, where is mummy's body just now and what's happened to it mm. and what's going to happen with it? And in an age-appropriate way, I ended up talking about cremation and, and mm. burial and mm. obviously, God, well, she can't come out the heart because that's a, that's mm. a feeling that's not... A mm-hmm. physical manifestation. Uh, yeah. And I, I had a similar experience whereby someone had um, told my little ones that um, daddy was up in heaven. And again, I don't make any judgments on people who believe in God and those types of things. But I felt very strongly that if they understood that he was in a place somewhere like heaven that that might mean they would think that he could come back. And I was very keen that they understood that, you know, he couldn't come back anymore and that that was not something that they could hold hope for. Um, And that's incredibly hard as a parent to talk with your kids about that. But It's even hard just getting the words out of it, especially early on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, something similar, like... well, I'm not going to go into the exact specifics of how I told the boys and things, but mm. that being very clear of mummy's died and we're not going to see her again. She's not. She can't come back, yeah. and that that is it. And the, the yeah. finality of death. Yeah, it's a lot for a young mind to understand. But I th- I think again, I'm not one to judge other people who with with religious views and things. But I think rather than from that perspective, the perspective I have is that it's important that other people don't try and put their yeah. the imprint their ideas onto your a young mind yeah. because I always respect other parents for the most part in their sort of outlook and what, how they want to bring their children up yeah. but it was very important to me mm. how I brought my children up and I'm the was the like I'm making the decisions yeah. and I'm going to for something like that I've got it planned out. Yeah. I've got the answers. This is how we're going with it. And I'm not wanting anyone else to come in and start filling their heads up yeah. with something that's going against my yeah. sort of yeah, and ideas think, about it. Yeah, and I think telling your kids, I said earlier that, you know, telling um, your kids that their dad has died, is uh, it was the hardest thing I have ever done to date. And it's 
when when other people then start maybe putting their own views on top of that it just feels like they're sort of stepping into a place that they're not supposed to be um and yeah so it's, it's useful to hear you kind of talk about that as well okay right last last part i wanted to ask you about um one of the things that's often um not not talked about that much in grief but i've definitely experienced it as like the secondary losses so you know this idea when you lose a spouse there's other things that you lose that you don't expect at the back end of it so for example other friendships that might be linked to that person or i just wondered like if if you recognize sort of secondary losses in your life after losing susan yes and i i, I anticipated that mm. and there's no there's no hard feelings about that. Yeah. Like, and there's, I think I've spoken to you before, there's like certain maybe people I would miss mm. from almost my previous life. Yeah. Like friendships that maybe Susan had. But also, I've got new friendships through you and also new friendships I've generated myself. And there's nothing stopping me picking up the phone and saying, oh, Hey guys, not catch caught yeah. up with you guys like for ages. I'd really like to hear X, Y, or Z. Yeah. There's nothing to stop me doing that. Yeah. But I don't. So part of the reasons that these relationships have slid is because I've allowed it. Mm. And it's I think it's natural. I, I like I remember a lot of Susan's really close friends uh, I've got another friend who gave me some great advice about you can only manage so many spans of contact mm. so and Susan was all about practical help that you need practical help for things mm. after we had like the first child there's people coming around and wanting to hold a baby and I said I'll come around and do the vacuuming and, and I'll <laughs> hold a baby that sort of practical thing of being able to I had this group of people all wanting to help and I thought now I might not be in the probably hopefully not needing that help but I had them all in one whatsapp group <laughs> and if I look back through my phone just now I've probably not like messaged that whatsapp group for maybe like three years mm. but I remember thinking that <clears throat> for, a, for at least a year or so that would be good and it would be good with, with, with friendships and I'd be, be able to reach out yeah. until I really got firmly on my feet yeah. uh, which <clears throat> I would say I mean my timeline for after the death is I was so the start of June, the death happened, and then I went back to work on a phased return after the October holidays. Phased return through my work choice, not through mine. Mm. And then I was back fully operational, shall we say, at the from Hogmanay onwards. Mm. And without going into any great detail of what I do for a living, it's probably fairly obvious to astute people. But I've talked about uh, it already. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, maybe I should have waited a little bit uh, and taken mm. advantage of the extra time I could have been afforded. But at the same time, I, I did. I wanted to get back. Yeah. And almost prove to myself. Yeah. That I was. Yeah. Still the same me, if or I was never going to be the same, but I was a better version of what I was before. Yeah. And I was gonna overcome the adversity of what happened to us mm. and again about being a, a good role model for my children and showing them you need to push through things yeah. and yeah, don't let things take you down if 
so to speak. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I've talked a lot about about um, you know people not really knowing when to go back to work, whether it's too soon, whether they can go back to work. Smart. Everyone doesn't always have a choice. Yeah. Depending on their employer, I was fortunate with working. Yeah. For who I do, that they were, they were very, very supportive. Absolutely. I can't criticize, I can criticize them for not letting me have a beard, but the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rest of the stuff maybe not. They were so good. Yeah. After the day. Um, and I guess just um from my own perspective on secondary losses, like I definitely recognise that sort of um friendships moving away and changing, because they were friendships that were um set up through Matty, I guess, and um. As time's gone on, I spend my time with different people now, um, and I'm sad about that. But I also know, like you, some of that is um, by design. It's just how it has to be because it's it's not the same anymore. Yeah. Life can't be the same. But as al- it was. also, like your secondary friendship, some of them will change for the better. So I never really knew Susan's godmother Denny amazingly well, mm. and the strength that she was to me after yeah. after Susan's death is incalculable. And it was amazing having her come round. Yeah. and she was such a positive and is such a positive presence in our life yeah. and the relationship I've had with Susan's mum and dad subsequent to her death I always got on well with them but I think our relationships changed and they maybe understand me a bit more and I understand them a bit more mm-hmm. and that's been really positive as well yeah. and it's I think it's yeah it's, a, it's important that you try and make the positives. Thanks for listening to this episode of Know Your Own Psychology. If you loved it, please share it on Facebook or Instagram for your friends and family. And if you really want to help me out, drop a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, you can email me, hello at drlaurawilliams.com. And if you would like to know your own psychology better, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose, come and join my growing community over on Facebook. Search Know Your Own Psychology and make a request.